April 3rd and 4th in Memphis, Tennessee. Visit mlk50conference.com. In 2018, we celebrate the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frederick Douglass. Frederick was a influential and important prophetic voice against slavery during the Civil War and after the Civil War and with the outlawing of slavery. Well, today I have D.H. Dilbeck joining me. He's the author of a brand new religious biography of Frederick Douglass that really helps us think through what motivated Douglas in his public calling and his prophetic ministry? Uh, a lot of people have tried to almost scrub out the sort of Christian conviction, but Dilbeck really brings out that his his motivation was really fueled by his faith in Christ. So Dilbeck stops by to talk about uh, Douglas's early life and stepping into the calling to speak against slavery and what we can learn from Frederick Douglass today as we think about the state of race relations in America. Let's join our conversation with Frederick Douglass biographer D.H. Dilbeck. D.H., thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about your brand new, I would say, religious biography of Frederick Douglass. I'm curious to know your journey into studying the life of Frederick Douglass and, and kind of what led you to write this book. Well, the first hook for me into this book was reading Douglas's own autobiography and especially his his first and greatest autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, published in 1845, not long after he had escaped as a slave to freedom. Tells the story of his life from his birth as a slave in Maryland up through up to really his escape as a as a young man in his early 20s. And one of the most fascinating parts of that autobiography in an appendix at the very end, Douglas lays out what I think is more or less the heart of his Christian faith, or especially how his faith informed the way he thought about uh, the matter of slavery in his America, and the way in which he saw uh, the Christian religion as practiced by both Northern and Southern white Christians, uh, really bolstered and sustained the the institution of slavery as, as as much as anything else in American culture, and the the manner in which Douglas drew upon his own distinct understanding of the gospel of Christ to call to task the what I would call heretical pro-slavery gospel of his day that, that captured my attention. I thought there might be more here to explore about how. This man's faith provided such meaning and direction to his life, especially his public life uh, in his uh, great crusade against slavery. It's interesting because when you're working on, on something like this, obviously requires quite a bit of research and really kind of getting inside the life of the subject that you're doing. I'm curious kind of what that process was like in terms of researching and, and reading through kind of the Douglas canon, which is pretty pretty large. It is pretty large. and. Fortunately, though, it's never a chore to to read Douglas, to read his speeches, to read his writings, despite how many of them there are that still that still survive. the The main source of material for this book, uh, more than anything else, were the hundreds and hundreds of speeches that Douglas delivered throughout his life that, that still survive. Many of them, most of them, really have been have been preserved. 
uh, to, to great effect. Douglas, for most of his adult life, made a living and a quite good living, really, on the anti-slavery lecture circuit. He was a he was a paid speaker. Um, he traveled throughout the nation, throughout the world, really, and initially giving speeches against slavery, and then later in life um, on a whole host of, of other topics uh, related to racial equality and inequality in American life. So it's, it's these speeches, really. Some of them at times lasted for two, three plus hours when, when delivered, but it's these speeches that really are the, are the foundation for this book. I, th- I think it's in those materials that Douglas, as much as anywhere, sort of is most honest about the nature of his faith and how he understood that faith to intersect with the most pressing social and political issues of his day. Mm. One of the things that I, I think is so fascinating about Douglas was um, the sort of, I don't want to say evolution he went through in his life, but he, he really was, you know, had various seasons of life where he was within the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement, and the larger civil rights movement. And you know, I think as, as we look back at sort of the Civil War era, and the, you know, the era where slavery became outlawed, we tend to think that sort of all the abolitionist movements were sort of monolithic and for one kind of um, method of stopping slavery. But really, there was a lot of diversity and disagreement uh, sort of in that camp. And he sort of traveled around through some of those, you know, camps quite a bit, it seemed like. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right that within the American anti-slavery movement in the years leading up to the Civil War, there was deep disagreement about, not not obviously about the goal of the necessity of ending slavery, but certainly deep disagreement about how to go about achieving that goal. Uh, the I think the two major fault lines that divided American abolitionists were, on the one hand, whether or not violence would ever be appropriate in service of ending slavery in America? Is it ever okay for slaves to violently rebel against their masters? Would it ever be okay to support a cataclysmic war that might end slavery? And secondly, related to that, there's deep disagreement over whether or not uh, abolitionists should be involved in any kind of conventional way in the political process. A lot of the most famous abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison's maybe a great example, were advocates of what at the time was referred to as moral suasion. The idea being simply that the American Constitution is, as Garrison called it, a pact with hell. <laughs> it's so deeply, sinfully complicit in slavery that it would be immoral in a way to participate in the political processes established mm-hmm. by this Constitution, that we have to just remove ourselves completely from it and just try to sort of transform hearts and minds through a kind of moral suasion. Douglas disagreed with that mm-hmm. um, for most of his life uh, as part of a larger journey on what he thought the Constitution, whether or not the Constitution was pro-slavery or anti-slavery. But he, he, was a, he wasn't quite that pessimistic about the immorality of sort of conventional political activity. But those two issues were deeply divisive within the American abolitionist community that, that Douglas was a part of. I mean, the other point to make is just to remember that Douglas, even among anti-slavery activists, is something of an outsider. Most of the anti-slavery activists in the years leading up to the Civil War are white, middle-class Northerners, sort of conventionally ed- educated. It's a decidedly different background from the one that Douglas is coming from. Mm-hmm. That's what was so interesting because 
being a former slave, kind of having endured the inhumanity of slavery, and then obviously then moving into a, a public figure role and prophetic role really kind of gave him a, a really holistic view and having, you know, deep involvement and background in the church gave him just kind of this well-rounded view. I want to talk a little bit about this, about some of the nuances of the abolitionist movement. What was so interesting about Douglas was how he did evolve from, is the Constitution pro-slavery, anti-slavery? Is the Declaration pro-slavery, anti-slavery? And, you know, first, you know, a lot of abolitionists not able to see the idea that, you know, the, the words all men are created equal is really intending for equality for everybody because of the the way that the founders owned slaves and just thinking that the, the, the writers of the Constitution were so morally compromised that we can't trust that document to be anti-slavery. Where Douglas obviously came to the position where, no, actually, whether or not Jefferson lived this out or, or Washington or any of these people lived this out, the words that they put down on paper – do lend themselves to an anti-slavery position and push the country to to I mean this is where where Frederick Douglass and then you can kind of see this you can see echoes of Douglass when you listen to Martin Luther King you know a century later basically saying you know you you say you believe these words all men are created equal but you're not living it out so constantly using the the constitution's words uh, as as a kind of a source text. Uh, I thought I thought that was fascinating that you you pulled that out and I mean that you, you really covered that in, in his biography. Yeah, that, that's 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 a great point and and it's and it's really an important one I think for understanding how Douglas thought about the constitution among other things. I mean and, and you and you described it perfectly that Douglas comes to believe that the constitution is anti-slavery despite the fact that clearly the original constitution tolerates and allows slavery. He comes to nonetheless believe that it's anti-slavery in part by separating in his mind the intent and actions of the founding fathers, many of whom were slaveholders, from the text of the Constitution itself. And Douglas says, just look to the preamble of the Constitution. What does it say are some of its, its sort of core purposes of this of this document and the government that it creates to secure the blessings of liberty. And, and Douglas comes to believe that that's sort of like the, in, the interpretive principle by which you make sense of the whole text. You know, I mean, you, you sort of let, let the manner in which you read the rest of the text flow from those mm-hmm. core principles, uh, chief among them, this sort of goal of preserving, preserving yeah. liberty. Um, and, and you're right to see a parallel, I think, between that move, you know, it's sort of, distinguishing between the intent of the founders and the text of the document with this larger spirit that defines Douglas's entire faith, which is his great awareness of all the ways in which the Americans of his day, the, the Christians of his day, preached a certain kind of faith and failed to live up to the best of the faith that they preached, especially as it related to Slavery. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he essentially. Am I wrong in saying that he essentially used the Constitution very similar to the way he used the Bible in the sense of basically saying it's not that the Constitution is wrong. I mean, you know, and it's not that the Constitution is pro-slavery. Isn't the Bible's pro-slavery? It's that you're reading it wrong. It's that you're not applying it right. Is, is, is that fair to say? Absolutely. And there's a very similar interpretive problem. I guess you could you could call it posed both by 
the Bible and the Constitution to Americans of Douglas Day. I mean, one way to put it is that if you approached both of those texts, the Bible and the Constitution, with a overly simplistic kind of literalist reading, you might take both to sanction slavery. The Constitution certainly, maybe more obviously, uh, but perhaps even the Bible as as well as many Americans of Douglas's day did. You know, I mean, the, the argument that it's kind of crassest and simplest went something like, "Look, there's all these passages in the Old Testament which slavery is clearly allowed, tolerated, ordained, even." And there's nothing explicitly against it, uh, you know, sort of per se in the New Testament. It's not like Christ anywhere says you must abolish the institution of slavery and Apostle Paul seems to tolerate it at times. And, and so you can see how a kind of unnuanced sort of literalism might assume that both texts are, both texts tolerate uh, slavery in one way or, or another. But, but Douglas is a, is a is a more thoughtful kind of interpreter of both the Constitution and the Bible than that, and he's he's mindful of the ways that the spirit of a text, the sort of core principles announced in a text, whether it's the Constitution, say its preambles, or the sort of core ethical teachings of Christ, ought to animate the way in which you read the text as as a whole. And certainly, there that interpretive method has its own pitfalls potentially, but that's the way in which Douglas ultimately came about sort of accepting that both the Bible and the Constitution were anti-slavery at their core. Mm. One of the things that was so rich about just reading about Douglas, you know, when you think of a prophetic calling, I mean, he inhabited that calling better than, you know, almost any other figure you could think of in American history where, you know, he, he really just kind of own that calling. And one of the things that's so interesting about about him is that he was very tough on the Christian the church for either endorsing or at the very least tolerating or just kind of being silent about the institution of slavery and the dehumanization of people of color. But he also was was hopeful uh and he maintained that hope uh even as he was being very prophetic living in that tension which seems to mean means that like his his work and his words really kind of hold up this many years later. Absolutely, I agree and and I think it's absolutely right to always remember the deep hopefulness in Douglas's prophetic religion. I mean he he shares with this with say the Old Testament prophets among others, right? They they are like Douglas as clear-eyed as anyone can be about the evil and depravity that exists on earth. And they're as courageous as anyone can be, certainly Douglas was, in speaking a clear word of truth about that evil and depravity and oppression. And yet, at the same time, Douglas never allowed his keen awareness of all the evil and oppression of his day to overwhelm entirely the deep hope that he had and and above all else, I would say the deep confidence that he had that God, in some mysterious, inscrutable way, was moving through history to eradicate the evil and oppression that he knew so well and knew most intimately in the institution of American American slavery. Uh, but it's, it's a hope that is 
common among um, many individuals of what I would call the sort of black prophetic Christian tradition in the United mm-hmm. States. We might think of it most most frequently with someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who mm-hmm. mentioned before that King has that great line in one of his speeches about uh, the movement, civil rights movement is going to carve a stone of hope out of a mountain of despair. Mm. And, and it's that, it's that same spirit, I think that defines Douglas's faith living in the midst of so much despair for so many good reasons, and yet continuing to hold fast to a deep, and deeply Christian spirit of hope as well. And one of the things that I found so impressive about Douglas, and probably seemingly so hard to do in the midst of all the despair, was, you know, while he is railing rightly against the slaveholder religion, as he calls it, uh, the slaveholder Christianity, the kind of Christianity that easily accommodates the institution of slavery, even commends it, that has a sort of compartmentalized you know, where church members who are held in high esteem are slaveholders and are just ruthless masters. He he rails against it, but then he, he also is, you know, every time contrasting it with true biblical Christianity. So he's not railing against Christianity per se or railing against Christ. He's railing against sort of a, a false gospel, if you will, right? Absolutely. And that, I think, among other things, is, is one of the core messages of Douglas's first autobiography, mm-hmm. which I would certainly recommend for everyone to read. He, if When you read the autobiography, the, the villains of that story are the Christian masters who were hearers of the word but not doers, mm-hmm. who were the sort of pious, respectable churchgoers and were the most violent and terrible to their slaves. Mm. And Douglas very intentionally, as I, as I mentioned before, added a, added a little appendix to the end of that first autobiography. And in it, he says, readers, I don't want you to think that I am a, an opponent of all religion based upon mm. what you've read so far in this, in this autobiography. He says, I, I'm an opponent of the sort of distorted religion of the slave master, but I still remain a deep follower of what Douglas liked to always call the true Christianity of Christ. And you're right, he's constantly contrasting the Christianity of the American slaveholder and the allies, northern allies, the tolerators in white America, north and south. He's contrasting that form of Christianity with the true Christianity of of Christ, the Christ who preaches liberty to the captives, who calls upon us to love one another as we as we would have others love us. So that kind of rhetorical move, that contrasting, is really at the heart of this prophetic faith as well. It's kind of like holding up a mirror to American Christians so that they can see clearly the ways that their actions, their deeds don't live up to their words, uh, what they claim to, to hold most dear uh, about their faith. Mm. And I find it just, you know, reading through your book and reading through his sermons and reading through his speeches, like he, from a very early age, he, I don't know how to say this, but he owned his calling. You know, you see him just really step into that role as a, as a speaker, as a prophet, which he really inhabited for most of his life. I mean, he did serve obviously some political roles, you know, that really was for most of his life, this sort of public 
conscience of the country and public profit. And uh, but from an early age, he he really seemed to own that. Do you, do you think just he knew very early on that uh, this is what God was calling him to do? There's no question that from basically the first time he really spoke publicly at an anti-slavery event, it was obvious to everyone who heard him that this was a man of uncommon ability as far as sort of powerful and persuasive public speaking goes. And a good deal of that rhetorical power came from his experiences as a young man. I mean, D- Douglas is such an effective speaker on the anti-slavery circuit, primarily because most of his speeches, and especially his early speeches, Douglas does little more than simply recount the horrors of his early life. It's as if he's traveling across the North to say, you might have some impressions about what slavery is like, but let me tell you what it's actually like. Mm from the perspective of one who's who's lived it. And you're right that from a from a very young age, I mean he's still in his his early 20s really. Douglas has an opportunity to step into this role as a public speaker, a role in which he very quickly sort of refines his prophetic voice and he continues to live out that calling for the for the rest of his life and I don't think there's any question about the fact that he very consciously thought of what he was doing in that sense as a deep kind of calling, uh, uh, the fulfilling of, a, of an essential role in the time and place in which he lived. Mm. I find uh, when I read Douglas, he makes just a powerful, passionate case for human dignity. You know, he grounds much of his prophetic talk against slavery and against the dehumanization of people of color and the you know the lack of full rights for people of color as a as a human dignity issue like you know do you see these do you see these people as full humans which is you know again it's echoes of i think of Martin Luther King Jr in the sanitation strike where he basically you know people were saying you know his, him and the people protesting were saying i'm a man like you need to see me as a man i i found that's just so powerful and really holds up you know to arguments people are making today Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, if, if there's any kind of common moral theological commitment that unites Douglas's activism on the on the key issues of his of his life, first slavery, then the securing of, of political and civil equality for black men after the Civil War, then his effort to try to secure civil and political equality for women of all races. He was, he was an ardent supporter of the right to vote for women well before the constitutional amendment was passed, securing that right. And then at the tail end of his life, his, his crusade against the system of Jim Crow as we know it, just as that system was coming into being, segregation, violence against Black Americans and the rest. If there's any sort of common moral commitment, theological commitment that unites the strong stance Douglas took on all of those issues, it's, it's exactly the point you raised, this, this sense that all of us as human beings share a common dignity derived from our common creator. And that dignity that we share uh, is as recognizing that common dignity is as strong a foundation as any for a sort of true and full 
political, civil, social equality in American life. That you can't believe in slavery or political inequality, civil inequality, the denial of basic civil or political rights to people if you also truly believe in the basic common dignity of all people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he also was very steeped in scripture. I mean, all his speeches are really just really rich. He knew his Bible. He, you could tell he read his Bible and, and really understood it. What's interesting, too, uh, about Douglas, I think, is kind of his, um, and, and you really, I think, bring this out in the book really well, that his kind of strained relationship with, I don't want to say the church, but with churches, just with congregations, you know, in terms of, you know, he found it hard to align with any one particular denomination for various reasons. Why do you think it was so hard for him to do that? That's a good question, and a question I think that gets, it's it's revealing of some key things about Douglas's faith. You're right that Douglas was never a kind of conventional churchgoer by 19th century evangelical standards. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and really, for good stretches of his adult life, he he never really consistently committed, certainly in membership in the way it was practiced then, to it, to any one particular church. I, I think the simplest way to understand that is that Douglas thought that even the most well-meaning Christian churches, say, of, of the North, black and white churches, we should say, were also in ways that they often didn't intend, often couldn't even help, were so thoroughly complicit, the system of slavery or racial inequality that defined the America of Douglas's day, that Douglas thought in a sense that remaining sort of joined at the hip with these churches at some point became a betrayal of his prophetic calling. It's only in a sense by remaining at arm's length from the church, one of the great sort of institutions of power, cultural political power of his day, Douglas thought, could he could he really fulfill this prophetic calling that was that was upon him? Um, it's it, it it was a a strained relationship, and it's um it's a it's a tension that Douglas lived with his entire life. I mean, at, at its simplest, it's a tension of was he going to allow all the ways in which the Christians of his day seemed to fail to live up to the core commandments of the Christian faith. Was he going to allow that to sort of totally turn him off to the faith altogether, leave him disgruntled, disillusioned to the whole to the whole thing, or not? And Douglas never went to that extreme, but he but he also re- remained at a distance from from the church as an institution his his entire adult life. Mm. And yet. He was hopeful, too, about the church and about America. I mean, that's what is so amazing about reading his stuff. He's very, very tough on America and tough on the church, and yet incredibly hopeful in terms of the church, you know, his hopefulness about the church, and seemed really grounded in in uh, eschatology and this idea that that God will judge evil, God will make things right. There's a there's a better day ahead. Were you just surprised by how hopeful he was as you're researching Douglas? Absolutely. I mean, if there was ever someone who had ample reason to be a complete hopeless, 
cynic, you know, a complete Mm -hmm. despair-filled cynic without any kind of hope. Surely it was Douglas, the man born into slavery, the man forced to live through the degradations of racial inequality that followed even after the end of slavery. If, If there's anyone who sort of had plenty of reason to wash his hands entirely in anger and despair of America and American Christianity. It was Douglas, but he never did. And the key reason that he never did, something we touched on earlier, he he always had confidence in the core political principles that he understood to be the foundation of the United States and the core moral and theological proclamations of the Christian faith as well. And however Americans or American Christians might depart in their actions from those principles, Douglas never lost faith in the power of those principles themselves to sort of come to a fuller and fuller realization as history un- unfolded. That's, that's, the, that's the anticipation that's at the heart of his, of his hopefulness, that, that these principles, all men are created equal, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, among others that those are, are still as true of any. Yeah, I mean, some of the most beautiful parts of his speeches and his writings are where he just really talks about God's future judgment and making things right. I mean, he really, really believed in that and articulated that in a way that few few really have and believed in God's future kingdom and just the fact that good will prevail and God will prevail in Christ. And you know, I just wonder if even in our activism today, if we're kind of missing that element that Douglas had, you know, regardless of the issue, this idea that um, we need to be prophetic and truth-telling, but also just very hopeful about that if we are aligned with God, that he will, he will make things right. And one of the, I think, key sort of qualities that that sort of hopefulness gives to a person, and it certainly gave to Douglas, is a kind of even-tempered prudence. You know, by that I mean that if you're hopeful in that kind of way, the highs at their highest uh, are never so great emotional extremes because you're, you're mindful of still of the evil and wickedness in the world. And the lows at their lowest and most depressing and distressful are never occasion for complete and utter despair either, precisely because of the confidence and in, in the hope that you have. Douglas is constantly, especially in the kind of darkest moments of the anti-slavery cause, sort of, I think, testifying to that kind of constant, I would call it a kind of prudence, a kind of even-tempered consistency of character born out of this hopeful confidence in the, in the ultimate direction of history. Yeah. The, the one other thing that I thought was interesting about Douglas is that he, it's so hard with social movements, whether it's civil rights or any other kind of movement, to both you know, push hard against the evil, but also try to work for incremental changes and recognize progress, but also push for further progress, but also not, you know, like he he really seemed to be able to be able to do that. I'm I'm, I'm thinking particularly, you know, throughout the Civil War, but afterwards in Reconstruction and kind of working with President Grant and others, kind of recognizing like, here's some real progress, but let's not rest here. There's more to be had, but also not being so cynical that he couldn't see it. So he, he really seemed to be able to do that well. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and, and again, I would say that's connected in a way to this 
deeply Christian attitude of, of hope, you know, I mean, it's, it's an outgrowth in a sense of, of two commitments that are somewhat in tension, maybe seem contradictory, but aren't, you know, a, a conviction on the one hand that courageous and consistent political activity can affect real and meaningful positive change in a society. And yet a conviction on the other hand, that you should never be so foolishly arrogant enough to believe that you can quickly and completely eradicate all the evil that you see in the world around you. And uh, I think those two core commitments are very central to Douglas's kind of ethical vision of, of the world. And, um, and, and it certainly kind of defined the manner in which he approached political social activity generally. I'm glad you're writing this book. It seems like Douglas is kind of reemerging in terms of people studying him and recognizing him. Do you think there's a reason, and maybe I just, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but it just seems like he kind of receded from history for, for a bit. I mean, he was still obviously covered in history classes and things like that, but in terms of the national consciousness, are, are, are you glad to see kind of a reemergence of, of an appreciation of his life? Absolutely. And so some of this is maybe attributable simply to the fact that he's, uh, we're, we're approaching in the thick of his the 200th anniversary of his birth. So people like me think you should strike while the iron's hot and write a book at this at this moment. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I think more seriously than that, there is there, there are plenty of good reasons to think that Douglas, at his wisest moments, might have a word to say to us uh, in the day in which we live confronting some of the problems we continue to confront, especially at the intersection of race and religion in American, in American life. Douglas thought as deeply and seriously about those problems as, as anyone in, in his day. And while our problems aren't exactly the same as, as his, there's still, I think, insight and wisdom to be drawn from reading how Douglas worked through those problems. Was there anything that surprised you in your study of Frederick Douglass or any, are there any kind of myths or misconceptions about the life of Douglass that, that you're hoping to, to change? I think the one big myth, and this is a, a myth that's more common among scholars is, is this idea that while Douglass had a kind of classic evangelical ex- conversion, born again experience as a young man, later in his life, he had pretty well turned a, a, away from, from, that sort of conventional Christian faith. And I just simply found that not to be not to be true, that that the, the sort of core convictions of the Christian faith that he embraced as a young man continued with him throughout his entire life. And one big surprise in Douglas's religious life, a, a kind of remarkable moment in his life that I had never, that I had never learned about before is a, is a story Douglas tells uh, about the first time he remembers really hearing the Bible read aloud. He was at the time uh, a young boy living in Baltimore. He had been sent to Baltimore to live with some relatives of his master. And uh, the wife in this family that he was living with for a time was a pretty ardent Methodist. And Douglas recalls late one night, having fallen asleep underneath a a table and waking up to the sound of this woman 
whose home that he was living in as a slave, reading aloud from the Bible, and reading aloud in particular from the first chapter of Job. And I, I find it so powerful, so remarkable that this young slave child, in hearing the Bible read for the first time, heard the story of Job read aloud, the story of this man who suffered through so much unimaginable tragedy and loss, and yet could still still manage to say, that could still manage to bless the name of the Lord. Douglas, the way he tells it is that having heard the story of this man, Job, read aloud, he decided he needed to learn more about this Job. He decided he needed, to, therefore, to read this thing, the Bible, for himself, which would in turn require learning how to read. And it's that that really set Douglas on the path to secretly learning to read and ultimately secretly reading the Bible for himself. His life was never the same for it. Mm, it's really powerful. Yeah, and it seems in one, one service that I think you've just done with your book, and I just really, really commend people to get this great biography, religious biography of Frederick Douglass by my guest here, D.H. Dilbeck. One thing you really do is just recover, I think, the religious, the Christian conviction of Douglass. I mean, I don't know that he's, you know, in the last, in the last few decades and years, he's been known for being such an outspoken Christian. And then you read your, your work and you read his stuff and it's just, he's constantly coming from a Christian worldview and a Christian perspective. And so I'm grateful for, for the work that you've done and really want to commend the book and really thank you for coming on the podcast to, to chat with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed, I enjoyed our conversation immensely. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's tragic assassination. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. On April 3rd and 4th, the Gospel Coalition and the ERLC are gathering a diverse group of Christian leaders in Memphis, Tennessee for MLK 50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop. Key speakers are Russell Moore, Benjamin Watson, John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Rick Warren, Tripoli, Matt Chandler, and many others. We're gathering these leaders to discuss the ongoing racial tension, uh, both in the country, but more specifically in the church in the last several years. And we'll reflect on the life and the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. You can get more information on mlk50conference.com. And if you use the coupon code WAYHOME, you can get a special discount. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.